morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I am, uh, we, we got caught in the Renfest traffic and it took us a while to get here. Um, I spent a lot of time, uh, my, one of my daughters took me to Renfest yesterday and so we spent a lot of time milling again amongst all the uh, various kinds of people that you find at Renfest and we had a lot of conversations about the spiritual need that you see in in the world and uh, as I speak today about Joel 2.32 I want to remind I, I said to Anastasia yesterday that these people need Jesus as well as anyone else um, and Joel 2.32, as we heard earlier today, said, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I want to reflect on that, on that fact that God specifically says in this passage he is vindicating Israel, but then goes on to say that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray for... Uh, for the sermon, and then I'll continue. Father, I pray as I speak, looking at your word, that you will bless us with insight into your word, that you will remove any uh, misunderstandings or distractions that come from me, and you will allow your spirit to apply your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Joel is one of the minor prophets. He's writing uh, probably around the time of around 500. Now, I want to tell you that I've read the book of Joel plenty of times in my life, but I haven't committed anything about it to memory before studying for the sake of this sermon. So I learned a lot about the book of Joel this time, and uh, I think that if you do a cursory search across the Internet, you will find a lot of the basic information I want to tell you in the next couple minutes. And you'll say, he just got that from the Internet. That's what happens when you study the Bible to learn something, is you learn some quick information that's going to be useful about something. And this is useful information to us. Joel was writing around the time of about 500 B.C. Uh, Joel is writing after the people of Judah have come back from the Babylonian exile. That was from around 586 to 516. And he's talking at a time when they have, he can refer to the temple again. So they are back in the land, and in, in they are in their rebuilt status, and yet he doesn't refer to kings. So this is post-coming back, but before they return to a full cycle of kings. And so that is the, the little time period in here that they find themselves. But he also refers to lots of other biblical literature. He quotes from at least eight other books in the Bible. And so a lot of those that he's quoting from are people who are prophets, exilic and post-exilic prophets. So he is aware of the current common literature, and he is assuming his readers are aware of that literature as well, which is really fascinating when you consider the fact that as a prophet speaking to the people, he never accuses the people of any sin. And he tells them to repent, but he doesn't tell them what for. 
because they're all already aware of it. He's writing in the midst of other literature. You read on Twitter and you hear one guy commenting on another guy commenting on another guy. He doesn't have to say everything that was said in the original article. He just starts making comments. And this guy is just making comments about what they already are aware of, their wickedness that has carried them into exile and been forgiven as they come back. But there has been a situation, a national crisis situation, that they are now dealing with again. Have they been forgiven? Or what is their status? The, reason, the crisis that they are dealing with is a major famine. Why is there a famine? Because they have been invaded by locusts. And the locusts have swarmed in and have eaten and devastated everything. So all the trees are bare, the fields are bare, the fruit is gone and rotten. The people are starving, the animals are starving. They cannot present worship to God in the temple because there's no grain and wine and oil for the sacrifices. So there is a great crisis happening, and he is reflecting on that. The whole first chapter of the book is discussing this army coming in, but it's not really an army, it's locusts. They come in, they, they come in in, in uh, columns. They can't be defeated by weapons. They're going to go past all the weapons. They darken the sun, moon, and stars because they cover up the, 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 uh, the sky. They cover up the hills. Everything is covered with these locusts that eat everything. And he starts going around telling people to be sorry. You, you drunks, you lament because you don't have anything to drink anymore. You temple authorities, you, you get call all the people together to lament that you can't present worship to God anymore. He tells the cat, he says, lament to the cattle and to the land. Everything has been stripped bare by these things. And yet he says, call a fast, repent, lament. But then he tells them to lament because the day of the Lord is coming in the future and when he describes what it will be like in the future when the day of the lord comes it will be like an army of locusts coming so he's saying this thing that that has happened here is an example of god's judgment and it is an example to be feared in the future that god will send an army but it sounds it's possible that he's using locusts to refer to an army, but it's also possible he's using army to refer to locusts. It's very difficult to tell. But it is a hypothetical event in the future because they, he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. We are hearing here that God is gracious and merciful. This is He wants to emphasize, and there's one, a wonderful feeling in the book of Joel, when he talks about how much God will desire to have mercy on you if you repent. God's desire in sending the trouble is not because God likes sending trouble, but he sends trouble because he's trying to get you closer to repenting and receiving his blessing. This is just, as you know, as a parent, if you have children, 
You don't discipline your children because it's fun to have a time of discipline in the house. That's not a fun time. You want to encourage your children to be in the time of the relationship where you can bless them freely. That's what you're aiming at. That is your goal. And God's goal is his great delight in blessing his people with mercy. Not only is he going to bless them, but even you know this famous verse um, that says that I will restore. Um, let's see, which verse is it? It's in. Uh, pardon me, I've been looking at it on a, on a screen and instead of in my Bible, so I don't have the uh, place of it memorized in my head. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The, the hopper, the cutter, and the destroyer. I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten, my army which I sent. So notice that the discipline that God sent, he knows that it may have harmed, damaged, hurt in some way. It might have been painful or cumbersome to you that he was giving you discipline. But when you've repented, not only will he start blessing you, but he will repair the pain of the discipline. I, have, I sent this, these locusts, and I not only am going to be nice to you now, I am going to go back and restore what was taken away by my discipline in the past. And that is a very comforting thing as we see the heart of God is to bless his people. And yet as, the, as Joel moves on, he says one of the ways that he will bless the people is he is going to rid them of their enemies. Now they're still in the context of being, they've been carried back from Babylon, they're allowed to go back from Babylon to, to Jerusalem and Judah. But they're still under the thumb of, at this point, of the Greeks. Uh, he mentions the Greeks in here. They are surrounded by by Philistia and several of the other these other tribes that are enemies to them on their outskirts, and they are under pagan rulership. And so they still feel, in some ways, that they are free, they are forgiven, but they are still under oppression. And God says, "I will take away your enemies, and I won't let them bother you anymore." And he says, in fact, go tell them, go preach to them. Come test me. Come see what happens if you attack my people. Tell them, gear up for war. Come here, and I will show you what happens if you attack my people. So God is giving them a, a confidence about the future that he will completely take care of them. Now, what can happen in a situation like this is you have just been forgiven for what you've done, you got carried off into captivity. You've been there a long time. Now you've been let home, and God says, you're forgiven, and I'm also going to take care of your enemies. And you say, ha-ha, to your enemies. Of course, he does want them to be joyful in their victory, but the question is, are the enemies of Israel God's ultimate enemies? Is God opposed to the Gentiles? And this is a question that was hard for the Jews to answer. 
and which Jesus had to deal with and which Paul had to deal with and comprises much of the actual content of the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, that God's ultimate goal, if we remember all the way back to Abraham's blessing, is that I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So God's, God called Israel with a purpose from all the way back from Abraham. Their, their job was to be missionaries to the Gentiles. This is their job. And so he gave them an advantage. Here's my word. Now you guys take this word. You get all my stuff. You get my law. You get my presence. And now go do your job. And they didn't do their job with the Gentiles. So he carries them off into discipline for not doing their job. And then he brings them back home and says, I forgive you and I want to bless you as always. And I'm going to take away your enemies. And they say, that's right, we'll get rid of these Gentiles. And he says, no, you see, that was, that was your job from the beginning. You, you need to still go do your job and take the gospel to the Gentiles. And when they take, when we get to Paul in the New Testament, he is having to continue arguing this. This whole, this basic idea that he forgave you for your sins. And if the only way that you, are, you Israel, are okay is because of the forgiveness of sins, then forgiveness of sins is the way we're working. And if forgiveness of sins is the way we're working, then God forgives them for their sins as well. And that means there's no reason to boast. There's no distinction. Did the Jews have an advantage, Paul says in Romans? Yes, he gave them. He says a few verses apart. I want you to hear this contrast. In, uh, in uh, Romans, let's see, I think Romans 3. He says a few verses apart. Has the Jew any advantage? Oh, well, yes, sure. He gave us the oracles of God, and he gave us the fathers and the covenant. But then a few verses later, he says, what benefit is there? He said, none. Because we're all together shut up under sin. So that God's righteousness may be manifest apart from the law. And if it's apart from the law, then his grace comes to us and the Gentiles together. Uh, he specifically says... Uh, in uh, Romans 3.29, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Now, I've said a lot of stuff about a bunch of stuff from all over. And I want to go back and focus on some interesting questions along the way about the book of Joel. Remember, the focus verse here in verse 232 is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see in Joel that he says, um, this, here is a, um, another one of the famous parts of this passage that he says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There, one of those points of saying, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all flesh means not just Jewish flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh in those days. 
and he proves it this way. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Not just on the old, but on the young. Not just on the men, but on the women. Not just on the free, but on the slave. On all flesh. But this, why does he say, I will pour out, what, where is this pattern coming from? This is a pattern that he is referring to, Exodus chapter 10. Um, in Exodus 10, this is Moses going to Pharaoh. And in the, in the midst of the plagues, he's telling him, uh, they're having this debate back and forth. And he, only, he doesn't get very far each time. Because Pharaoh always gets mad and sends him out. And, and he has to keep coming back and pushing for what really God is asking them for. And Pharaoh is like, just, just let the man of you go. And, uh, and Moses says to him, no, I have to take other people. Let me read for you verse Exodus 10, 9. It's not just the men that he's going to take, but listen to the specific list that he gives. Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters. We will go with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Well, it's, it's got to be a feast, so we've got to have the young and the old. We've got to have the, the men and the women, the boys and the girls. We've got to have all the representation of the people there. Well, this is one of his references back to the book of Exodus. Uh, another one that you uh, heard in the, the, verses, the, the next verse in Joel is, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. You remember the column of smoke, the pillar of fire by day, the pillar of fire by night, and pillar of smoke by day is another reference to the Exodus. He also mentions blood. There was a plague of blood in the water. In the book of Joel, he also mentions the cattle being destroyed and the crops being destroyed. Those are also parts of the plagues. He mentions the sun being darkened in the book of Joel, and they had a plague of darkness. He mentions many, but not all, of the plagues. He mentions most of them at a, uh, in a word here or there, but one of the plagues he mentions very consistently throughout the whole book. We've already talked about it. It's the plague of locusts. Right? The plague of locusts is the one that he's focusing on. The plague of locusts was specifically the eighth plague. And uh, one of the most important things about the number eight is that it has a meaning in the Bible. Now, anytime you start talking about the meaning of numbers, you have to reassure people that you're not making stuff up, right? You don't get to make up the meanings of numbers in the Bible. You actually have to get them from the Bible. Otherwise, you're herald camping, and then you can tell everybody to, to wait on some mysterious return of the Lord on your calendar. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about things that are revealed already, what 
is the thing that happens on, with the number 8 in Scripture. What is, what is the thing that happens on the number 7? The number 7 is the completion of the week of creation. And so the 8 in Scripture is very consistent in the Old Testament. When you see the number 8, it refers to the first day of the second week. The first day of the second week is new creation. You have creation for seven days, and on the six days, rather. And on the seventh day, God rests, and the eighth, he stops resting and goes back to work. What's his next work after creation? It is new creation. And you will see this. The number eight is focused on over and over in the Old Testament, and it, regard, it is one of their primary uh, pieces of theology is that God is coming to restore creation. So, maybe that's a connection, but what is, what is it that, that happens with the locusts? What do the locusts do? They destroy creation. They came in, they covered the sun, they took away the, the plants, they killed the animals, they harmed the people, and now the people are languishing, and God says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten, so I am going to restore creation. So this is, a, this is a focus here, is new creation. And this is also a focus of the New Testament. That in the Old Testament, we had a focus on the division between the Jew and the Gentile because of sin and because of Israel's job to preach the gospel to the, to the nations. But in the New Testament, when the Israelites also had to be forgiven for their sins. And when God has forgiven them for their sins, there is no barrier wall between them anymore. As the book of Ephesians tells us, there is one new man. And that new man is made of Jews and Gentiles. The new man is the church. As 2 Corinthians tells us, if anyone is in Christ, behold new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. It says in your version, probably, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. But it actually, literally in Greek, says, if anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. We have a new heavens and a new earth. This is a major theme of the Bible. And the new creation in the New Testament insists on the reconciliation of the Jew and the Gentile. One of the other focuses back to the book of Exodus is we see in uh, verse 12, uh, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This verse 13 here, let me read that section again. He is, the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. This is a rereading of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. When uh, Moses comes 
uh, for receiving the second. Remember, he's had to, the, the law has gotten broken because the people were sinning with the golden calf, and he's had to go back and get a second set of tablets from God. And God says, God declares his name to Moses in that passage. And he says, I want to read it right and not trip over my tongue like Moses. Right? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, he tells the Lord. Here he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. In fact, let me back up and say he says this is his name. Okay, So this is one of the versions of God's name that he gives himself. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now that's a phrase that's repeated at many places in the giving of the law. It's in Exodus 25. We have packed on the helpful additional phrase, third and fourth generation to them that hate me. But I want, to, I want to talk for a second about this because this is part of this question of grace and forgiveness. I want to say God feels it is so important to tell us this is part of his name. Let's clear up what this means so that we can understand the promise of forgiveness in it. Because I have always had trouble with understanding. I love the sound of the whole thing. Slow to anger. Great with forgiveness towards iniquity and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I, I don't understand. Didn't you just say that you're going to forgive sins and now you're saying you're not going to clear the guilty? And then what is this about punishing the sins of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation? That doesn't sound fair either. And that really bothered me for a long time. But I want to, I, I think that there's, a way to uh, to understand what's being said here, and it and it does help out. Um, I want to make reference to Proverbs 30 for a second. Yet another passage I know. Proverbs 30 has these fun little uh, vignettes where he says, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough." Uh, and then he lists four things. Um, Three things are too wonderful for me, and four I do not understand. Uh, here, here's one of them. He says, three, um, three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among the beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. Well, the point there is that there is a Hebrew idiom with three and four, right? That three and four come together as a progression. Well, which is it? Is it three or four? 
why would you say three and four and then list four things? Why did you say three? The same question could be asked when God says, I'm, I'm going to punish the sins of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation. Well, which is it? How do we know when we're free? <laughs> is it the third or the fourth? Because if you're the fourth generation, you want to know if you're free or not. Well, this is an idiom that shows progression and a focus going forward and, and also tends to emphasize the bigness of something. There are three, four things I don't understand, which really means there are so many things I don't understand. There are lots of things I don't understand, but the number is conveniently small enough that I can just list four of them here for you. But in this passage in Exodus where he says, I will punish the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, that's actually saying continuously, as far as it takes. I will keep punishing the sins of the father on the, on the, on the children as long as it takes to them who hate me. Which I want, to, I want to explain here how this removes actually the idea that you're afraid of, which is that he's punishing the sins of the fathers on innocent children. He's not saying that. He's saying as long as the people continue to hate me, as long as the father's sins show up in the children, they're also guilty. They don't get to say, well, my father did this too. I should, I should get a free path. I was taught to act this way, but you did it too. As long as the father's sins show up in the children, as many generations as fail to repent, he will continue to by no means clear the guilty, which is what he just said. But before that, he said, before that, he said, he is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. So the people he forgives are the ones who are not sinners, right? And the ones he charges are the ones who are sinners. That's not what he says. The ones he forgives are sinners, and the one he holds guilty are sinners. So what's the difference? Well, in Exodus 25, 20, verse 5, the difference is to them that hate me and to them that love me. In other words, the turn of the person toward God with their sins or the turn of the person away from God with their sins. Your sins are not God's obstacle. They are something that God wants to deal with. But there is only one source of dealing with them, and it's God. So if you will, you don't have to even be a not a sinner to get help from God, who longs with abounding love to give forgiveness for transgressions. But you have to be willing to come to him and give him your sin. You have to repent. So the difference between the people who are being punished and the people who are not being punished is not their goodness, but it's whether they trust God. It is as we are told by Paul when he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles that he will save the Jews by their faith and he will save the Gentiles through their faith. 
Now you can go figure that one out on your own later. <laughs> but the Jews are going to be saved from the inside by their continued faithfulness. And the Gentiles, if they have faith regardless of not having had the law, they too will be saved. It's not how good they are. And the difference between Jews and Gentiles isn't goodness. And in fact, in the New Testament, there is no distinction allowable any longer because the Jews have their missionary job is over. Jesus came and did the final work of the missionary job, and he has done the final conviction of all of Israel's sins and the final conviction of the Gentiles' sins, and he has taken the certificate of debt that was consisting of decrees against us out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's no room any longer for a division. So we may say what Joel said 500 years before, but was a mystery to the Jews until Paul started forcing them to face what it meant. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Sometimes when we, as believers in this time period, right now, speak about what's true from the Bible. It is not received well. Sometimes people have the response that you are not to judge. Didn't Jesus tell you not, not to judge? Is that what you're doing to me right now? Um, what, what is the difference between speaking the truth in love and speaking the truth so you can divide yourself from people? That's the difference of what Jesus is saying with judge not. Don't say, I don't have to be with those evil people. But you don't get to stop preaching the word of God in order to be, in fact, with Christ's love. I long to be with those evil people in their repentance. I want these people to experience the blessing that I have had. Now there are nations God is going to send away to keep me from being tormented any longer. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if one of those people were to repent, I could see that God will restore to them the years the locusts have eaten as well. You remember Hagar that it was an Achan, that right in the t midst of the conquest, it was a Jew, Achan, who was condemned for being faithless with God's commands. And Hagar, a prostitute Gentile, who was renowned for her faith and repentance and trust in the God who was coming for the sins of the Gentiles. And I, for one, am thankful that her great-great-grandson, Jesus, re redeemed us from our sins. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, for there is no distinction. And God's love for the sinners on the outside is as good as it is for the saints on the inside. And that's why we communicate and we try to do the missionary job of speaking to those at work, your families, your friends, your neighbors, who need to know that God is abounding 
in steadfast love and long to forgive sins and transgressions and not only to start being nice to them but to restore the pain of the discipline he used to push them toward him because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved let's pray Father I thank you for being a good God. Frequently, I find that you surprise me that you're a a gooder God than I think you are. Confusing passages in Scripture make me afraid about your character. And the more time I spend with them, I come to understand that they don't say what I'm afraid of. That the parts that are clear can be trusted that you are abounding in steadfast love, that you long to bless us for a thousand generations, that you long to forgive our sins even though we are sinners. Thank you for loving us and thank you for letting us be able to tell other people that you long to bless them as well. I pray that you will make us bold, speaking the truth with those around us, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and that through our witness you will allow us to see people turning to you in faith and experiencing restoration, and that we ourselves would remember how good you are to us, and we would rejoice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.